Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about Chapter 10 of Uniquely Human. But first, we are going to play a game. So stay tuned. We're going to talk about this or that, and then we will talk about Chapter 10. Okay, I'm ready. Hit workout or cardio workout? Uh, okay. <laughs> I know you're a cardio girly. <laughs> I know you like your treadmill. <laughs> I will say, yeah, I do. I know the benefits of hit, but like hit could be cardio too. But I, I prefer just like a cardio walking uphill at 3.5 to 4 miles per hour. <laughs> Get the sweat going, yes. but consistent. I used to do hit on the treadmill. Oh. But no, I don't like those like hit workouts where you're doing burpees and then, you know, no, 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 no. Yeah. I don't like it. I know the benefits. I've read about the benefits. What about you? I am the opposite. I prefer a hit workout cardio. I just like I've never been a runner. It's just not really it for me. I don't even really like to exercise, to be honest. Well, that's why I walk. I know. I know. But I'd rather do a hit workout because I'm like, OK, like 30 minutes. It's pretty hard. But then you're just like done, you know? Yeah. And yeah. you're sore the next day and you feel like you did something. And yeah, I do hate burpees, though. I'm with you on that. So, oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not doing the right hit workouts. I do like weightlifting. Oh, That's what I do. I have an update. What? I have an update for you. On what? So I know we've talked about the sweat app before. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was feeling like really inspired. I was like, okay, I need, I'm kind of on like my little bit of like healthy eating kick. Okay. Just like was, you know, the holidays was just eating, having a little too much cheer, you know? Yeah. A little too much <laughs> indulgence. Precisely. And I was like, okay. So I'm eating healthy. And then I was like, I need to work out. So I remembered Kelsey Wells and the sweat app. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay. So I downloaded the sweat app, but I don't have the big gym like you do at your house. Yeah. I have some weights. And a yoga mat, a wish, and a prayer. But she has like a no equipment one, doesn't she? That's the one I'm doing. Okay. So it's like power at home. Yeah. I've done one day. So, <laughs> you know. Feeling good. Every time I work out once, I like look in the mirror. I'm like, 
I just expect to like, <laughs> I work out once and I'm just like transformed. <laughs> okay. I know. I know. That's what I'm, that way, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always telling my fiance that I'm like, look at this definition. He's like, you started two days ago. Stop. <laughs> okay. I'm going to tell you something. I have an admission. Oh. I deleted the sweat app. You haven't been using it. Because I stopped using it, but I'm going to show you whose program I'm using. Okay. He's old school. Oh. He's real old school. His name is Mike Menser. Can you see? Oh, I can see. <laughs> what on earth? Is, I hope. Are you going to look like that? <laughs> Muscle he's a man. Real, he is not with us anymore, but he had oh, this program. And it's super. It's like you work out every four days. So you do, you do oh. two workouts a week almost. Oh. Um, and you just do one set of each, but you do it to like failure. So it oh. is a little bit of a scary workout because like if you're doing squats, you're squatting a lot of weight, but you do like five reps and then you're done. Mm. But I do, I get very, I get like my heart is racing before I have to squat because I'm like, what if I get down and I just can't get back? <laughs> oh no. So yeah, I'm doing like a heavy duty bodybuilder workout. But it's nice because you don't have to work out very much. Like, is there a bikini competition in your future? Like, what's happening? <laughs> no. Like, I'm also tanning daily uh, and spray tanning. And <laughs> I'm oh eating goodness. egg whites. <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. It's just, it's something that worked for me because I don't like to work out like every day. Yeah. But I love that you got that because I love Kelsey Wells. I love her story. I do. She is someone who pops up on my Instagram a lot because if I do see a post of hers, right. I go down a little bit of a Kelsey Wells rabbit hole where I look at every post she's ever made. I don't know about her story. Um, I have no idea. Just her, her whole fitness journey started from postpartum. So she had her son and then um, she was just really struggling oh. with her mental health and, you know, exercising was kind of what really, really helped her. So she's just all about mental health and wellness, but like balance. But she just, I mean, she's just such a gorgeous person. I mean, she's. You just look at her and you're like. Muscly. She just glows from the inside out. Wow. I love that. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you know how it goes. I mean. Yeah. I'm sore right now. Yesterday was like arms and chest and I'm like. Ooh. Yeah. It's rough. So. Okay. Adrian just made this one up. <laughs> Taco Bell or Del Taco. Okay. This is sort of a regional question, I just realized, because maybe not every place has Del Taco. But for those who don't know about Del Taco, it's just like Taco Bell, but like Southern California. And they have burgers and fries. <laughs> and fries. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to go with Taco Bell. Thank you. And there are some specific reasons. Okay. And I'll get into it. <laughs> well, first of all, let's back up. Let's back this truck up. Number one, for a brief period of time, Del Taco had impossible meat, fake meat. Uh-huh. And as a vegetarian, this was like a game changer. They had yeah. these impossible tacos. So good. It was like the impossible meat, just like the regular taco. And then like one slice of avocado on top. So good. And then they just took it away. And like, since I'm on the soapbox, I will also talk about Panda Express, who briefly <laughs> had Beyond Chicken, orange chicken. And it was so good. I was like, Panda Express is number one fan for like two months. Uh-huh. I was like, finally, I can have orange chicken as a vegetarian. And then it just went away. Yeah. And it was like the most heartbreaking thing. So I think the vegetarians, I don't know, we're not coming out en masse the way we need to, to like keep these retailers providing for us. I think vegetarians as a whole 
just make healthier choices and are not big fast food consumers. That might be, I might be making a generalization. <laughs> I get it. I mean, I have no shame because I don't eat fast food that often, but it's like, it's so nice to have some options. So there was a brief period of time where Del Taco was it for me because I could get this like fake meat. I could get some fries. It was heaven. But ever since they took it away, now I have to go to Del Taco and it's because they put their raw onions. Taco Bell. Oh, Taco Bell. They put the raw onions in the bean and cheese burrito. Game changer. The texture. Amazing. <laughs> so and always get extra, by the way. That's amazing. Number one. Number two, I like their nacho cheese a lot better than Del Taco. Oh, Del Taco and the has chips. that white. And the chips. And the chips. Yeah, of course. And that's basically it. That's why. <laughs> Although okay. one yeah. one positive for Del Taco is I do like the, I like their cheese a little better. The actual like shredded the cheese. The shredded okay. cheese. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, there's something about it. It's a little thicker or something than Taco mm -hmm. Bell. Okay. Yeah. And then the beans are like debatable. Like I'm curious whose refried beans do you like better? Because Del Taco is a little more textured, you know? I don't get things with beans from either place. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, I have gotten things with beans from Taco Bell before. But as yeah, a non-vegetarian, yeah. I'm not a very like huge oh, bean eater. I don't eat a lot sure. of beans. Sure. I will say that I did not grow up in a place with Del Taco when I was younger. So I am strictly Taco Bell as a child. Mm. love Taco Bell. But since yeah. I was introduced to Del Taco after going to college and then living here in Southern California, I don't th know if they have them anymore, but they used to have these fried jalapenos on their menu and be open very late when I would be coming home from my restaurant job. Mm -hmm. Like if I was coming home at one in the morning, Del Taco was the only place open. So I would go and get these. I would get like a quesadilla, fried jalapenos, whatever else disgusting I could find on that menu and then be sick the next day. <laughs> but I would just say overall, Taco Bell has a much fresher feeling to me. Del Taco always seems, maybe mm. it's because I was always getting in the middle of the night, but it always seems like it's been sitting there a while, mm. a little too greasy. I don't know. Something's not quite right. I agree with you. The nachos at Taco Bell, the cheese oh my gosh chips. yeah yes. a round of applause for taco bell <laughs> so delicious. wow this game's all over the place we're talking fitness we're talking fast <laughs> yeah all right laura here's one for you fresh flowers or a potted plant i would love to be a potted plant person but sadly i don't know how to keep it's them alive it's very sad. Is there anything worse than feeling like you're just killing plant after plant after plant? Like the best I can do is getting one of those little at Trader Joe's, the little succulents in the Dia de los Muertos pot that's very yeah, comfortable cute. and cute. Yeah. And that does last through Halloween. <laughs> No, I did just, I got rid of it last week because I was like, the Christmas decorations are going up. I got to get rid of this sweet little succulent. Succulents are like, it's like harder to care for than you think, you know? Because I think like, the problem is finicky. the overwatering. You water it too much, you know, and then you've got this very sad, mm. like drenched succulent. Yeah, I can't, I can't do the potted plants. I don't know how to keep them alive. I know I could figure it out online, ask somebody, but I just love fresh flowers you know and i me too 
I feel like the ones that last the best are actually the cheapest. Like if you buy a mixed gross bouquet, they die because they're all like born at different times. Whereas if you buy like a bunch of mums that were like three ninety nine mm. at Trader Joe's, you're going to have those things looking great for two weeks. Yes. I like one flower. Yes. My daughter talked me into a bouquet of like blush pink carnations. <laughs> Not really a carnation person, but no. she was insistent. So I was like, okay. But actually, I love them and they were pretty and they lasted forever. She put them in her yeah. room. They were like her flowers. So I was like, okay. And when I went in there like two weeks later, I was like, oh, still kicking. Yeah. Still yeah. fresh. <laughs> I also love to get the little bunches of greens, like any type of greens. And I'll put them oh, in yeah. like, you know, tall vases or pitchers around the house, just like a little pop of green, yeah. pretending I'm a potted plant person, basically. Yeah. Because those last for a long time, too. Even after they get dried out, they still look pretty good. So you keep them around mm. for like three weeks to a month and then you get rid of them and they like shed all over your house because they're so dry and crispy. These are the tips. Okay, so we're on the same page with that yep, one. These are the tips, folks. <laughs> Come here and find out how to just get the most out of your greens. <laughs> Wait, what's your favorite flower to get though? Um, I love peonies, peony season, the Trader Joe's uh -huh. ones. They just, when they like open up, they're so beautiful. Trader Joe's, I will just say. Long, long ago, I guess it was 13 yeah. years ago, I did my sister's baby shower for her first baby. And I remember going all over the place, very last minute, trying to get flowers from like a florist just to decorate like, you know, like get a few bouquets or like yeah. some arrangements, whatever. And it being so expensive, like everything. I was very poor at the time, you know, I was very young. Right. And then what I ended up doing was going to Trader Joe's, buying a bunch of ton of bouquets of just like a single type of flower and then we made our own arrangements and it was I don't know a quarter of what it would have cost they looked gorgeous had them forever yeah Trader Joe's flowers that's the way to go always love it all right well thank you everyone for listening stay tuned for chapter 10 have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G SLP I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers Groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. 
When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. All right, so chapter 10 starts out with Dr. Barry talking about how oftentimes in the beginning of a child's journey with autism, it can be hard for parents to see outside of the present moment. So it kind of seems like the child's always going to line up their stuffed animals or that they might never display interest in friendships. But it's important to always remember that autistic people progress through developmental stages just like everybody else. One saying goes, one does not grow out of autism, but one grows into autism. And in this chapter, Dr. Barry shares the stories of four different families who have sons that he's worked with from a young age all the way up through adulthood. And these stories should give hope for what the future might hold for an autistic individual. And I like the stories. I thought they were all a little bit different, but they had some similarities. And I think for any parents who, like you said, Laura, in our last episode are kind of at the beginning of their journey, this might be what somebody needs to hear. Yeah. The first story is about the Randall family. So Andy first started showing signs that something was different when he was about two years old. He lost some of the words he had learned and rarely looked at people. Initially, he was misdiagnosed as having a severe speech delay by a school psychologist. Uh, I'll just leave that there. He displayed hour-long meltdowns and sleep disturbances. He was finally diagnosed at five years old. So there was a long period of time where he was misdiagnosed, and that can be really tricky. And while the diagnosis felt like a relief to Andy's mother, his father had a more difficult time grasping the scope and severity of what his diagnosis meant for his future. So because Andy was diagnosed in the early 90s, autism was much less talked about. They had to deal with a lot of confusion and had to educate many of their friends and family. And despite his challenges, his family tried really hard to maintain the life that they would have regardless of his diagnosis. So... They pushed him to do a lot of things. He spent the night at other people's houses frequently. He went swimming at the local pool, went out to restaurants and social gatherings. He was exposed to different people and different environments. But at this time, you know, he was still mostly using echolalic speech to communicate with others. And things went downhill for him when he reached adolescence. So he attended a private school that used behavioral approaches. And this meant that sometimes he was locked in a padded closet and he was often confused and angry. He lashed out at home and broke things a lot. So at this point, his mom really listened to her gut and they decided to change schools. So he began at a collaborative special education school where he was treated really warmly and the staff were open to parent suggestions. And it was at this school that he read words for the first time at the age of 13 and it was at the suggestion of his mom who found a program that she had heard was really helpful for children with autism, and it made a big difference for him. 
And he aged out of this school when he turned 22. And this was kind of like a gut-wrenching moment for his mom because they loved the program and he'd made so much progress. And now they needed to find a program for him. And it was just really hard. Like she toured 10 different programs. None of them felt like the right fit. But eventually they just had to pick one. So she did. And it was really disorganized and not great. And he regressed, sadly. So eventually they pulled him out of the program and moved him back home. And his mother manages his time and all of his activities. And now he's in his mid-30s and he's still living at home. So he receives adult services that allow him to make his own choices with some support. So he likes to kayak and do adaptive yoga and watercolor paint. And he has a job and he stocks shelves at a Dollar Tree and continues to learn new skills But despite some of his behavioral and communication challenges, he still has many endearing traits and a mischievous personality. (laughs) And his mom said that he has taught her to be more patient and that good things come in many different packages. So she feels that he is more than his autism and that he is an amazing human being. And I really like that. Yeah. That's just one family and one story. His mischievous personality, is he the guy who puts the bottle caps in In the air conditioning vents? Yeah. Does he put them like, so they fall in all the way? Is he damaging the car or is it just like they're stuck in there? I think he might just like kind of place it there and then maybe look at the driver to like, oh, do you see what I did? That was like my vibe. but because. I was like, is this another kid that's just messing with someone? Like, Dr. this Barry's isn't appropriate. Like, so mischievous. <laughs> isn't this? <laughs> He's such a wild guy. It's like, well, he broke her car. <laughs> she blinded someone on the plane, Dr. Barry. <laughs> what a rascal. <laughs> okay. The second family is the Correa family. So Matthew's mom first became concerned about him when he started exhibiting echolalia during conversation. And his preschool brought their concerns to the family when they noticed him arm flapping and engaging in solitary play. But it was hard for them to accept that he might have autism because they had a neighbor who had a recently diagnosed son and he was nonverbal. Their son, Matthew, was a chatterbox. So they compared the two and thought to themselves, like, well, if that's what autism looks like, then we don't think that's our son. But both parents were willing to accept the diagnosis when a doctor diagnosed him with pervasive developmental disorder. And he showed a lot of frustration over not being able to communicate. He would lash out at others and scratch and hit them. So he had a teacher for first and second grade named Tracy. And she was one of those people. What did Dr. Barry call them? Like not naturals. They get it. Oh, they just like got it. it. Right. They just get it. They have it. Yeah, right. (laughs) She just got it. (laughs) So she was really good at embracing his interests and just kind of accepted him for who he was. And his dad kind of said like before he met Tracy, you know, Matthew was really frustrated and kind of internal. And then after meeting her, he was way more expressive and happier. Yeah. But then once he moved past second grade, he struggled academically and Though he was a good rote reader, he struggled with comprehension. So I think that's pretty common. Eventually, his mom realized while she was at an autism conference that these small frustrations could build up within the autistic child until they sort of made their presence known through new behaviors. And he had been having some new behaviors at that point. So she realized that was what was happening to him. And it wasn't his fault, but it was just a symptom of the situation. 
So his mom brought her insights to the school psychologist and he had a good team who was really willing to work with her to make sure he had a happier time in high school and his adult transition program. Now, Matthew has become self-sufficient in a number of ways. He can navigate a Subway restaurant from walking through the door all the way to paying. And he helps his family with grocery shopping. He's well organized. He can help with planning meals. And he is the keeper of the family schedule. However, he still struggles with anxiety and focuses too much on his own interests during conversations. But he shows good awareness of his limitations and he knows his boundaries. So... I think that was related to driving where they really wanted him to drive. And he was just kind of like, I don't want to. I can't. And they just respected that. Like, okay, well, you know yourself. We don't want to push you to do something. And, you know, driving came up a lot in these stories Mm -hmm. over and over. And it was really making me think about when Dr. Barry talks about autistic people mostly living in a state of anxiety. It's like, wow, like, isn't driving so anxiety provoking like of course it would be hard for them to drive or even want to drive because it's so scary and unpredictable yeah so I'm not surprised to hear that that's a number one issue for people yeah I hadn't really when we talked about driving when we read the loving push I didn't think so much about the unpredictable nature of it just not knowing what to expect at any given moment somebody could just cut you off or you know all that stuff so yeah I definitely understand I did want to say By chance, I'm at the grocery store today and a high school special education class was there shopping. Oh my God. And this teacher, this amazing teacher, was helping the students budget, talking about how much money they each had, how much each thing cost, how, you know, oh, well, you can't get that bag of chips, but let's find smaller bags of chips. Like he was, and he was so loud, like the whole store could hear like all their business. And then he's getting up to the (laughs) register, checking out when I'm checking out and he's helping them all pay for their stuff. And he goes, all right, so we're going to, this lane looks good. And remember to use your good social skills. So what do we say? And the girl's like, good morning to the, and then one kid was standing doing all the math on like how to do the change and it was unbelievable watching them like I wanted to talk to them but I was like Laura just keep it to yourself zip it (laughs) (laughs) like just let them have their time their outing like you don't need to involve yourself but it was just and then I'm reading the chapter right right after and I was like the timing of it was interesting just love those I know you were involved in community outings and stuff and teaching those life skills. And it was nice to read this chapter where the parents are celebrating the things that their kids can do with the help of, you know, supportive providers, like teaching them these skills. It's amazing. I agree. That story you just told really did make me think about my time in the high school. We were lucky to have a room that used to be the home ec room. So we had like stoves in there Mm -hmm. and so there was also a grocery store right across the street and a taco bell (laughs) so (laughs) we would go walk across the street and they would do shopping just like you talked about get ingredients go back to the class and make something Uh and then also at lunchtime we would do outings there was a pizza place we would go to and then there was a taco bell so I love that so his parents there was something that came up and I would like to talk to you about this Laura because I have kind of a story about this, but they were talking about how a major issue for his parents was how to discuss his autism with him. 
Mm-hmm. So there was a parent or there was a teacher in high school, his high school, who was going to give a talk about autism. And she like wanted him to be there to listen. And the parents were kind of like, I don't know, talking about it and decided to opt him out of attending that lecture. Yeah. Because they wanted to talk to him about it in his own way, in their own way. But I don't know. When is the right time to do that? You know, and I know that kind of came up in the last chapter where Dr. Barry was covering that one dad who he was passionate about advocating for disclosure, right, to kids. Yeah. And I was just thinking about like, that's a sensitive topic that I really don't hear much about how and when to talk to your child about that. I guess it depends how much awareness they have, but it is important for self-advocacy. Yeah. Reading this and thinking about that, I wish I could go back and talk to some of the autism teachers I worked with because I do feel that that is a decision that should be made by the parents. Right. But maybe it needs to be something that as a society, we decide more kids with autism should know more about autism because- you see the kids who say, well, I have autism and they seem to have this awareness that their classmates might not even have. And so you know that their parents have talked to them about it and they have this understanding. They are better advocates. You know, it's like you see how beneficial it can be. But some parents, what was it? This The dad didn't really want to talk to him about his autism diagnosis because like he sees him as so much more than a diagnosis so parents have their reasons for not wanting to and I do think we should respect that but I would be curious to know like in a dedicated autism class some of the teachers I worked with I could picture them talking to the class about what it meant to have autism but I don't I was never part of that so I don't know if schools do that or It's really interesting. It is. And I was thinking about like, how confusing would it be to know you're different from other people? Kind of like the last, like chapter eight, right? Where the dad was saying like, once he got diagnosed in adulthood, he looked back and was like, oh my gosh, so many things make sense. So like, Mm -hmm. is it kind of weird to walk through your life feeling like, whoa, I'm really different from other people. Maybe you get support services, maybe you get speech and maybe you get some OT or you're in, you know, kind of like a mild mod situation, but you don't know why. Yeah. You just like feel different or you feel like things are harder for you and you literally don't have a reason for it. But there is a reason you could know, but there's a stigma attached or so I don't know. I just or even it's very think about tricky. the kids who mainstream for like a portion of the day who spend, you know, three quarters of the day in an autism class and then a quarter of the day in just a mainstream third grade class. And those are the kids that really do. I think it's really important for them to know. And I think it's important for the teacher in the mainstream class to be talking to their students about this student is with us and he has autism. And what does that mean? I don't know. I just think more just more awareness in general for both the kids that have autism and then also the kids that don't can move everyone right. forward even more. I know it's definitely case by case, family by family. But I just I wish personally that I heard a little bit more about how and when to talk about this. Maybe it's something that should be discussed at IEPs every year, just kind of brought up like has this been discussed? Because also I've been in a position where I've kind of mentioned it to a child, a high schooler before and they were like, what? And I mm-hmm. was like, what? <laughs> never exactly. mind. Like running away. <laughs> yeah. I never told a kid that they had autism because yeah. I didn't know if they knew. Yeah, you're right. It should be something. Let's bring that up. <laughs> I'm going to put it on the Instagram. Like 
Are right. we talking at IEPs about whether the parents want their kids to know? I mean, right. it's, it'd be interesting to know what other people's experiences are too. Yeah. Um, okay. And then a little bit, just a little more about Matthew. They did eventually talk to him. And now he's able to advocate for himself and talk more freely about his strengths and challenges and autism in general. So his parents, there was a little bit at the end of that story just about how based on his mom's early experience with working with people who were disabled, she felt it was better for children with disabilities to live at home and that those children thrived. That was her opinion. So he's still living at home. They have no plans for him to live independently, and they just feel like they've learned a lot of kindness and honesty and enthusiasm from him. So again, some serious topics being brought up that we've covered when we talked about the loving push, but it's like, if that is your stance and you don't really want to push for, I mean, it sounds like he's somewhat independent, but you don't want to push for independent living. What is going to happen when you're not there anymore? Yeah. These are things that parents need to, and I think he was mentioning some anxiety or maybe it was our next, the next family I'm going to cover. But um, there was some discussion about the child with autism, who's now an adult, discussing like fear around parents dying yeah, and not being there anymore. So there's a flip side to every coin. Yeah. Okay. And the next family he talked about is the Domingue family. This is a little bit of a sad story. I did not expect this. Yeah. Yeah. So the main lesson for this family was that they always trusted their gut when it came to their son, Nick. So when he was two years old, he seemed okay. But then he started exhibiting some behaviors, flapping his arms and hands, lining up toys, screaming for no reason and biting his sister. So he was soon diagnosed with autism. And then the family started their journey on researching to understand more. So he joined a day program in Providence, Rhode Island. But despite the support he still had a lot of challenges. So he would elope and there was a scary story about one time the mom like left him in the kitchen, walked away, came back, he was gone and he had ran outside and there was a lake nearby and she was like very scared and just a really nice stranger had intercepted him and was like kind of waiting with him for her to come. So some scary moments like that. And then he would still scratch and he once tore the cornea from his father's eye yeah. Yikes. I was like, oh my gosh. But once he was in school, he still struggled, but he also excelled. So he was really, really good at math and still mostly echolalic. But occasionally he would say like the wrong phrase. I think it was like right in the kisser, like in the bathroom and somebody <laughs> thought he was going to punch him. And so there were some misunderstandings. But then when he was in eighth grade, uh, their family suffered a tragic accident. So their family car was hit by somebody who ran a red light and everybody was okay except for their oldest daughter who suffered a traumatic brain injury that left her pretty severely disabled and paralyzed. So very sad. And the incident really affected the family, but it especially affected Nick. I think he was really close with her and that definitely stopped him from ever learning how to drive. So he had a lot of anxiety about it. And he still lives at home and he's soft-spoken, compassionate, and low-key. So for years, he worked part-time at a movie theater selling tickets and concessions. And he really did well because of his adherence to rules and routines. And then his mom founded a nonprofit called Community Autism Resources. So she helps offer programs and assistance for a lot of families in the New England area. And when her son was diagnosed at the age of three, Nick's mom called someone for advice. 
And the woman said, my son is eight. Your son will be fine. And now she's able to give that same reassurance to a lot of families through her nonprofit. They sound like an exceptional family who's had to deal with a lot. And what a nice story kind of about hope and perseverance. And I thought it was really nice. Yeah. Well, it's just like that section in the last chapter eight on faith. The family already had their challenges because he, you know, really had some behaviors that were tough. Yeah, I thought that too. And then what would rock your faith more than getting in this accident and having, you know, your daughter paralyzed? It, It was really rough on me to hear that, you know. Yes, me too. Like, just feel like that's so much on the plate. And there were some things I didn't really mention, like how he's a caretaker for her. Now, he's the one that was worried because he told his mom, when you guys aren't here anymore, I'll take care of her because she took care of me when I was little. Like, it seemed like his sister was his biggest supporter. Yeah. So then he loses his rock, like his big source of support when this happened. It was just so. Yeah, I know. I know. It was really hard to hear for sure. Yeah. Um, The last family that he covered is the Canha family. Similar beginning, as with the other stories, Justin started to lose his language at the age of two, but a doctor told them he didn't have autism. He had pervasive developmental disorder, which we know is the same thing, (laughs) but it made his mom really frustrated because it took her a year of researching to figure out that they were the same thing. Yeah. So again, we can say these offhand things to people and it can have these cascading effects. So that was kind of sad to hear. Thank goodness we're past... PDD NOS. Like, I know. It's confusing for us. Like, I remember learning it and being like, what is this nonsense? What's the difference? (laughs) Okay, sorry. No difference. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Though Justin wasn't very interested in other people, he was curious and alert and able to concentrate. So they went for an evaluation with Dr. Prezant and he told them, like, Just give him the right amount of support and keep your expectations really high. And he has unlimited potential. So initially they were enrolled at an international school in Belgium where they were for work. And he didn't receive a lot of support at the school. So his father trying to help him to learn. And I guess his father was an artist or something. He kind of started showing the information through storyboards to Justin, which now that we talk about it, it is kind of like a modified social story, probably. Um, Though I think Mm -hmm. it was kind of like routine based and about safety. And this was when his father realized that he was really smart and Justin could learn if it was shown to him in the right way. That was like a breakthrough moment for his father. And then the family relocated to the United States and enrolled Justin in a public school inclusion program. But after a couple of years, they were pretty disappointed with the program and his progress and felt like nobody on the team had taken a personal interest in him. And that's what his mom was saying. Like, if people care about Justin, then he thrives. But if nobody really cares about him, then it's like no progress is made. So they moved again. And then at the new school, they found a great nurturing environment where his personality began to emerge And he has a charming sense of humor, a love for animals, a strong work ethic, and he's really affectionate. And then over time, it became really clear to his mom and his dad that he had great potential artistically. So his mom was really dedicated and a great advocate for him, and she worked hard to find the right people to work with him. So art tutors, social skills coaches, occupational therapists, and other professionals. And if anybody remembers, in one of the earlier chapters, we talked about the artist who would only draw cartoons until he found the right tutor 
who kind of, I think she meowed like a cat to get him to do landscapes and stuff. Yeah. And that is Justin. So yeah, full circle. Here we come. <laughs> but he's a really gifted teacher and he likes teaching art to typical and autistic children. He designs and decorates birthday cakes. He speaks in front of crowds. He's a real Renaissance man. And we love that about All Justin. Right. Oh, Justin. <laughs> I know. Um, his father thinks it's ironic that his biggest strength is his communication skill with other human beings. So he has a really magnetic personality and a great presence. And eventually he moved into an apartment with his brother in his late 20s. And then he moved into his own apartment in a government funded building for elderly people and those with disabilities. And he does not drive, but he's really great at using public transportation and rideshare services. He has a job at a bakery and volunteers at a wildlife sanctuary where he also does tours, which is really sweet. And he really just likes to be engaged with the outside world, but he also likes his personal time where he just engages in self-talk. He repeats a lot of movie scenes to himself and enjoys time on the computer. And his father's parting words about this were, when you meet Justin, you immediately know he's different. And he's successful, not in spite of that, but because of that. So I thought these were really hopeful stories, even though they were all kind of different. And I love like not only the journey of each individual son, but also of the parents and the families and their kind of journeys to acceptance. It's a nice message, you know? I loved it. Yeah, me too. So this concludes part two of Uniquely Human. And then on our next episode, we're going to start part three, which is called The Future of Autism. So in the next chapter is chapter 11. And that's when we're going to really get into whatever teasers Dr. Barry's been dropping throughout the book. So one more episode and then we will conclude Uniquely Human, which has been such a beautiful book. I'm so happy we're covering this one. Yeah, this is a good one. So we'll see you next time. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club.